The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. 25 minutes over 18 months. That's the amount of time the mainstream media covered the Hunter Biden laptop scandal. Think about that. 25 minutes over 18 months. It's no surprise that the media continues to run cover for the Biden administration. And we're going to get into the very latest with the president of the Government Accountability Institute, Peter Schweitzer, um, who's been on this from the beginning. I mean, from four years ago and also discuss the latest on what's happening in China. By the way, I'm wearing my lighter shades today because I'm having some light sensitivity in the wake of my LASIK. It's not uncommon when you have dry eye like me. Uh, so I found a happy medium on my on my eye approach today. Anyway, we're going to begin the show today, however, with journalist Matt Continetti on the past, the future of the Republican Party. Uh, and they're related. And it's actually sort of a roadmap, he argues. If you look you look at the past, it'll show you where the GOP is going and what to expect. He has literally written the book on the right. His book is called The Right. The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, and it is out as of today. Welcome, Matt. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Megan. It's great to be here. So I love this because we always approach our lives, I think, whether it comes to the COVID pandemic, whether it comes to politics, as if we're the first people to ever be here. You know, like there's there's no past from which we can learn. We're just going to have to forge our own path. And yet somebody like you takes the time to actually study, for example, in this case, the, the history of the GOP. And you say it, it kind of explains exactly where the GOP is going. And the, one of the most interesting things I thought from it was how you argue Trump was not an aberration. Trump actually may have been the normal <laughs> for the GOP. Not necessarily the tweeting, but policies and his approach and what was appealing to him. And Ronald Reagan may have been the aberration. So let's just start with that. You you look back at 100 years and what give us the top line conclusion there. Why did you why did you reach that assertion? Well, Megan, most of the histories of the American right, they begin at the end of World War II and they culminate with the election of Ronald Reagan. Or sometimes if uh, they take the tragic view, they have a coda with Barack Obama in 2008. What I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of widen the lens uh, to take in a greater picture of American history and the history of the right and also include the prehistory of the American right, what the right looked like before the Cold War. 
before America's victory in World War II and take up the story basically until today. So my story begins in 1921 and it ends in 2021. And when I told the story that way, I found that the Republican Party of 2020 resembles in many ways the Republican Party of 1920, especially in its attitude toward immigration and its attitude toward uh, international economic competition and trade uh, and in its attitude toward overseas entanglements and foreign intervention. Hmm. All right. So you start way, way back with the Harding administration, then into the Coolidge administration. And then and and the conservatives are sort of going along, pushing these ideals that you talk about. And then FDR, I mean, comes along and things change dramatically. The pendulum shifts in the country toward progressivism for many, many years. So how did that happen? How were the Republicans out of power for some 20 years after um, Harding and Coolidge? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Uh, the Great Depression <laughs> and the um, the Great Depression uh, really delegitimized the Republican economic record. The Republicans of the 1920s really uh, benefited from the public perception that their policies were responsible for the extraordinary growth of the period. Uh, but when the Great Depression happened, that really um, kind of uh, delegitimized, discredited the Republican economic policies. And it allowed FDR to fundamentally transform the social contract in, in the United States and expand the size and scope of the federal government really in a way that America had never known. Mm -hmm. And so the right in the 1930s defines itself in opposition to FDR and his New Deal. And was, this, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, so this this is an interesting development because most conservatives in other countries are defenders of the established order. That's you know basically what we mean when we when we talk about conservative. But for America, the established order, beginning with the New Deal, is liberal, and so conservatives were on the outside, and it took a long time for conservatives to work their way back in to the center of power and the center of American politics. Was the electorate right to blame Republican policies, conservative policies for the Great Depression? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the 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 cause of the Great Depression wasn't necessarily um, the fault of the banks or the stock market. I think the the studies of Milton Friedman, the great uh, libertarian economist, pretty much prove that the Great Depression was worsened by the policies of government, by the policies of the Federal Reserve that led to the credit contraction and the banking crisis and prolonged the Great Depression. For whatever reason, um, the, the American electorate thought that FDR was handling the Depression well, not only in his pragmatic attitude of experimentation, but also his personality. You know, one of the lessons of this history uh, that I wrote is that personality counts for a lot in American politics. Mm. The quality of candidate matters a lot. In fact, the, the personality of a candidate probably matters more than his or her policies. And I think that applied to FDR. His, um, his charm was evident. He, he had charisma, uh, he, he um, presence. And so the American public invested a lot in him. And then by the end of his presidency, of course, America had entered World War II. And the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor delegitimized the 
rights foreign policy of non-intervention and no overseas entanglements in the same way that the Great Depression had delegitimized its economic policy of laissez-faire. So really, by the end of the Second World War, the right is out of power, and it's also on kind of the margins of uh, intellectual and cultural life in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so there my story tar- starts charting how they got back in, yeah, <laughs> and they got about- back into the mainstream. Right. And and it's fascinating to talk about William F. Buckley Jr. and National Review and so on. But before we before we go there, a word on personality of presidents, because there is there was a piece. It was yesterday, I think, uh, in The New York Times by Charles Blow. I mean, not exactly a conservative guy. And he was talking about Biden's problems and this devastating Quinnipiac poll that shows his approval rating at 33 percent. Maybe it's an outlier, but as he points out, there have been four major national polls released last week. And in three of them, Biden has the lowest showing of his presidency. Um, So he he's struggling. There's no getting around that for the White House. And it comes on the heels of a Politico interview, as as uh, Blow also notes, with Biden's pollster, in which he's very blunt and says there's really no one who would deny this is a really sour environment for Democrats. And Blow is asking the question about what if the issue here is not the messaging, right? Because the White House and and the pollster, they all say we got to do better on the messaging. If we could just get the message out. They said Biden on a two city tour (laughs) to 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 bring the message to the American people like, oh, wow. okay. Um, But he says, what if it's not the messaging, but the messenger? And he he makes the point. Charles Blow does that, that that voters have a void of emotional connection to him, that they can't cheer him on. And if they can't cheer you, they will chide you and talks about how he's just not resonating even with the people on his side to the point that you were just making, which is even if his people like his policies, and I don't know that they do, they feel nothing for him. Right. And if they felt more strongly about Biden, then perhaps they would um, kind of overlook some of the awful consequences of his of his policies. Uh, I think uh, one of the more revealing poll results uh, in recent weeks was Gallup asked the public what their concerns are. Of course, the number one is the economy, cost of living, the inflation. It's devastating America. Number two, though, was poor leadership in government. And I think that the electorate has made a come to a conclusion about joe biden and it is a negative one and it the conclusion really began with our uh withdrawal from afghanistan it's carried on through the uh mixed messaging on covid during the omicron wave um it's gone through the inflation uh the the public is not giving biden the benefit of the doubt and that's because we have to remember why biden is in the oval office He didn't win the Democratic nomination because he had a grip over a core constituency or was able to um, have everybody swoon over his words. He won the Democratic nomination um, basically because uh, Democratic bigwigs realized that he was the only plausible candidate to take on Trump in the general election, that the alternative was Bernie Sanders and a, a Sanders nomination might mean a total collapse of the Democrats. And then he won the general election, um, in my view, mainly because uh, he wasn't Donald Trump and that it was it wasn't a mandate he received from the public. It was an anti-mandate. It was don't be Donald Trump. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and other otherwise don't do anything else. And that's why the Republicans performed uh, better than expected uh, in, uh, at the congressional level um, in order to even check Biden there. But of course, Biden with uh, not realizing that he received an anti-mandate, not realizing that he had the uh, smallest margin in the House of Representatives for Democrats in 100 years, decided, you know what, I will be FDR mm. without the charm. And uh, <laughs> that has not worked out well for him at all. Right. And um, not only going hard left on economic policy, but going hard left on social issues, which many believe is why his he's seeing such a precipitous drop with Hispanics. Those those two issues, Hispanics tend to be more conservative socially and he hasn't been. And they're getting hit by these pocketbook issues in a way they weren't under the Trump administration. Um, And so, you know, the White House is in a panic. There's no question. They understand what's coming their way uh, in these midterms. And the only real question is, do they lose the Senate and the House or just the House? And do they even try to pivot? You know, they tried to pivot away from covid. But do do they try to pivot away from anything else? Right now, Matt, they're not. Right now, there's talk in the news today, you've seen it before, of the new plan to bring back, build back better, the $2 trillion additional spending plan that was already rejected because they couldn't get their own party, namely Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, to sign on to it. And they're going to revive it right now with record inflation. They're going to spend more if their party allows it. Now, this is a night of the living dead when it comes to legislation. (laughs) Uh, I don't see much of a chance for Build Back Better, precisely as you say, Megan, because of the inflation. That was Joe Biden's main concern in December when he came out against the bill. Inflation has gotten only worse with time. Look, the window is closing on this Democratic majority, and I don't think they really know what to do. Um, And it's because they're so beholden to their progressive left wing base uh, that they're unable to pivot to the center. Um, you mentioned the Hispanic vote and the realignment of the Hispanic vote, just this epical uh, development in American politics. Another issue there is schools. You know, I think mm. we still haven't internalized the uh, anger and, and frustration and grief in many cases among American pr- parents because of the way that the schools handled COVID the way that they continue to handle issues like masking. And then, of course, COVID provided this moment of radical transparency into what is being taught in the schools. And there, too, parents are uh, up in arms. So when you think of the education issue, for example, uh, historically, that has been to the benefit of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. Not anymore. And so, too, with the economy, Um, you know, Democrats have often benefited from uh, coming into office after a recession, right? Um, and, and so they get take credit for the re- natural recovery of the economy after a recession. Um, in many ways, that's what Barack Obama did. Um, that's what Bill Clinton did. Biden doesn't have that luxury because of his very policies, because of that stimulus bill he put in place a year ago, despite the warnings of Democratic economists that it would unleash inflation. He did it anyway. The inflation came. And now, not only is education not a democratic advantage, the economy is no longer a democratic advantage. And that, I think, spells uh, victory for Republicans in November. Well, something else has happened to the parties in this country over the past 10, 15 years. And that is this shift in who is the party of elites 
and I don't know, maybe 15 isn't the number of years. Maybe we go back to Bill Clinton, but you're the expert in this. Um, where it used to be the Republicans were sort of the Chamber of Commerce Party and they sort of had the the working class. They didn't care about the working class. Right. It was like they, they were worried more about uh, the white shoe class and, um, you know, Wall Street and people who make the money and pay the paychecks. And now that seems to have done a complete 180. You know, over the course of Bill Clinton's warming up to Wall Street and then Barack Obama's doubling down on it, not caring at all about the working class and its problems, which led to Trump and this migration of voters over to the GOP side. And you write about this, too, about this internal conflict and also coordination within the Republican Party when it comes to elites versus populists. Can you Mm -hmm. educate us a bit on that? Well, it's, uh, as you say, a major theme of my book, uh, this competition and sometimes coordination, cooperation between populists and conservative elites, um, intellectual elites primarily. And it starts really um, at that moment where the right after World War II is delegitimized, is out of power, uh, doesn't even have a foothold in the Republican Party. And what the conservatives of that time in the mid 20th century discovered, Megan, was that their arguments weren't convincing the elites in our society uh, who were primarily liberal elites, but they were resonating with uh, the working class, with uh, white Americans without college degrees, uh, with the um, basically the descendants of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. And so when William F. Buckley Jr. runs for mayor of New York City in 1965, he does it um, in order to knock off the Republican candidate, uh, who was a liberal, a congressman named John Lindsay. He doesn't do that. Instead, what happens is Buckley's votes come from the Democrat. They come from the Democratic candidate, Abe Beam. And it's because Buckley's arguments um, for uh, uh, economic dynam- dynamism for law and order in particular, um, they resonate most in the outer boroughs of New York, the same places that would go on to um, put Rudy Giuliani in power in the mm-hmm. 1990s. And a place like Staten Island, of course, voted heavily for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. So we can see even in the mid-1960s that the, the working class um is going to move out of the Democratic column. And this happens with Richard Nixon and his hard hats, right? The construction workers that uh, was one of his uh, uh, most devoted uh, constituencies. It starts with the Reagan Democrats in 1980, and it just carries on through uh, to the point where we have today where um, the Republican Party is, I think, a populist party. Uh, And it's become a... Uh, a a unique situation for conservatives because conservatives who who appreciate populism and its power also need to be able to figure out well how can we uh, inject populism with our ideas and our policies in order to address some of those very real concerns that the electorate has today yeah so define populism for this for the purposes of this discussion Sure. For me, um, populism is uh, a confidence in the ability of everyday people to make decisions and a a lack of confidence in what the experts or the elites in our society are saying and doing and the decisions they make. 
So that's how I define populism. And when you look at the history of the United States, you find that populism is a feature, not a bug in American politics. Um, from the original Tea Party to today's Tea Party and the Trump movement, populism has always kind of risen up at moments in American history where elites are the people in power are not responding to changing social and economic conditions mm. or they're responding in the wrong way and so uh well i date this latest populist upsurge really toward the end of george w bush's administration when george w tried twice to pass a comprehensive immigration reform that right. included an amnesty for illegal immigrants residing in the country and uh, that, I think, really created a fissure between conservative elites in Washington who were for the Bush bill and for the populist grassroots, which were living through what was happening on the border. Um, and they said no, that uh, amnesty would only incentivize more border crossings, uh, more law breaking. And um, that distrust between the populist grassroots and the conservative elites in Washington that began, I think, circa 2006 with the fight over immigration only grew wor worse over time. So how does it wind up that they elect Barack Obama out of out of George W. Bush, right? I mean, there just weren't enough Republicans who to, to whom immigration was important because you certainly wouldn't have gone that route if your main concern was immigration. Right, right. Uh, well, many people stayed home uh, for when the nominee is John McCain, right? And there's also simmering um, distrust and uh, discontent with George W. Bush's Iraq War. And that's another element of, of, it, of the populist upsurge as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it, by 2007, when Bush finally changed his strategy and sent more troops to Iraq to uh, pacify the insurgency, and secure the population, um, a lot of Americans and even many Republicans were beginning to believe that the war had been a mistake. And uh, so you saw kind of the phenomenon of the Ron Paul campaigns in 2008 as an expression of this discontent uh, with the way that Republican elites were, um, were running things. And so Barack Obama um, in 2008 benefited from, I think, um, uh, disillusionment with the war. He benefited from a lack of Republican enthusiasm, precisely because Republicans were not on board with the Bush administration's immigration plan. And then, of course, he benefited from the financial crisis and Great mm -hmm. Recession, uh, which true. the Great Recession had started even earlier, but the financial crisis kicks in in September 2008. And um, that was kind of all she wrote, as they say. The Great Recession did for Obama what uh, COVID did for Biden. Right. It, exactly. Right. Yeah. Or the Great Depression did for FDR. Um, yeah. But uh, the party in power. Exactly. And um, Obama, though, was uh, able when he ran for reelection to say, well, look, uh, unemployment's coming down. Things are headed right. in the right direction. And Mitt Romney's not really in touch with the people. I don't know if Joe Biden will even be in a position where he can make similar arguments in 2024. Mm. It is interesting. Remember when there was the big push to draft Chris Christie and instead it was Romney that year and yeah. uh, everybody's like, oh, you know, he missed his window, which he clearly did miss his window. But 
One of the things people liked about Chris Christie, this is before Donald Trump, is he's a fighter. He used to yell at the teachers unions. He didn't let anybody push him around. We weren't used to seeing politicians like that. And he was scrappy. Yeah, it's from Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, I like Jersey. Everybody's known as like a fighter. You don't mess with somebody from Jersey, you know. And um, my husband always jokes because we have a we have a we spend our summers there. And he's like, you just wanted to buy the property in Jersey so you could make the Jersey jokes. Um, (laughs) But anyway, my point is everybody loved him. But he missed his window. And I wonder whether in retrospect, he really would. He might have gotten it done. He might have beat. He might have beaten Barack Obama because Mitt Romney was completely the anti Chris Christie of, of that year and the anti Trump, you know, the elite, religious, you know, corporate raider, perfectly quaffed. You know, I mean, if you want to look at Republican elite, look it up in the encyclopedia. There he is. There's Mitt Romney. What do you make of that? Uh, I think there's something to it. Um, and I think Romney and his running mate, Paul Ryan, really were the best that um, the conservative elites in Washington had to offer in 2012. Um, obviously, uh, they're well-spoken, intelligent, they had plans, they had big ideas, but they failed. And why did they fail? Well, I think uh, primarily it was because Romney did not connect with those uh, working class voters that had been so important to successful Republican coalitions in the past. And in particular, I think of um, an ad that the Obama campaign used very effectively, which was simply a testimonial from a um, worker who had been laid off at one of the factories, which Romney's company had turned around, right? Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically by laying off people. And it was direct to the camera. And he talked about how devastating that was for him and his family when he was laid off. And in um, the Rust Belt, uh, an ad like that uh, really went a long way. So Romney couldn't capture that, uh, couldn't connect on that level. And then a second reason is that uh, there was a feeling among many conservatives and especially the populist grassroots that um, Romney was... uh, you know, he played by the, the rules which had been rigged in the liberals' favor. Mm. So, of course, he he didn't challenge Candy Crowley during that presidential debate when uh, the CNN anchor who was moderating, moderating the debate, Crowley, uh, basically lied about what Barack Obama had said after yeah. the Benghazi, Benghazi terrorist attack. Did he call yeah. it a terrorist attack? And he got out yeah. an act of terror. He got away with <laughs> yeah. him referring <laughs> to it. No act of terror will be tolerated was the same as him saying we've yeah. been attacked by terrorists. This is a terrorist attack. It's not the same. Right. And Crowley basically just shut Romney down and Romney didn't fight back. And so there was this building sense among a lot of conservatives uh, and especially among the populist grassroots that they wanted someone who would fight back uh, against these institutions, primarily the media uh, that they felt were so anti-conservative that had been captured by the progressives. Um, And so you see how that would attract this group to someone like Donald Trump, uh, who didn't didn't care what anyone thought about anything. And even today, you see how they're attracted to someone like uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, because he also is willing to challenge uh, the press. And he's also willing to challenge uh, corp- uh, liberal corporate elites. I mean, look at Disney. He's, he's going up against the House yeah. of Mouse, right? So yes. I think there's a, a lot of conservatives who admire that quality. Um, the question is, though, uh, does that fighting spirit um, repel 
some of the voters who are independents and who are more moderates who live in the suburbs, but who are also key to having a Republican victory. You can't have one or the other. It has to be both the populist grassroots and the suburban independent moderates. Mm. And pulling off that trick is very difficult. But we do know we can see, for example, Glenn Youngkin was able to do it in Virginia, of all places. Well, and Trump did it. I mean, Trump Trump did did win. In 2016, he was able to. Yes, he won independence by about seven points in in 2016, and then he lost them by double digits in 2020. And that's the whole story right there. Um, There's so much I want to go back to that moment you you referenced, you know, mid 60s and the Republican Party is asking itself, now what? And the birth of National Review and the effort to sort of fight the elite capture of all these institutions and how how the Republicans did, how how well did they do? Because that's something obviously Republicans are dealing with today on a mass scale. I don't think you can argue they've captured any of these industries, at least under, as of 2022. So what happened? And can they be recaptured? More with the guy who has become an expert on all of this, uh, thanks to self-study, tons of reading, and a lifetime devoted to these causes. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has a over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds in stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's arkseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. arcseedkits.com. In the introduction, you you refer to 1150 17th Street, and there's a reason you start here, because it sort of shines a window on the effort by the right to start fighting back uh, and and trying to recapture the the national narrative and these cultural institutions. And and why? Why does 1150 17th Street give us a window into that? Absolutely, Megan. Well, um, one of the strategies that the conservatives used to fight back was to create what they called counter institutions. So if the media was too liberal, we were going to have an alternative conservative media and talk radio is the greatest expression of this. If the universities are uh, captured by the radical left, we're going to have to find think tanks where right-leaning scholars can work and have a home where they can formulate their own ideas. And so the address in Washington, 1150 17th Street, was a hub of these sorts of counter institutions. It was the headquarters uh, for many years of the American Enterprise Institute, where I work today. And it also housed the magazine uh, where I worked for many years, the Weekly Standard. Uh, And in addition, it even had a a small uh, think tank also associated with the Weekly Standard called the Project for a New America Century. Uh, so uh, 1150 17th Street was kind of the main hub of the American right uh, for a period of 
basically the turn of the 21st century and uh, throughout the George W. Bush administration. And it was there that I showed up for work uh, one day in July of 2003 as a recent graduate of uh, Columbia University and to begin a job at the Weekly Standard. And I think it was meaningful because uh, now today, if you go to 1150 17th Street, uh, you see uh, nothing. The building was knocked down in 2016. And those institutions that were once housed there, some have moved. So AEI, where I work, is in a, another building uh, a few blocks away. But uh, the Weekly Standard, for example, is no more. It was shut down in 2018. The world of the American right has changed uh, in the 20 years that I've been working in Washington as a journalist and commentator. Big time. I, it's crazy to think when, when the Weekly Standard shut down, it, I, I can't say it was a surprise because at that point, Bill Kristol, who's you know mainly associated with it, had so alienated the Republican base, the Trump loving Republican base. He, he's a never Trumper. I mean, he's basically like a Lincoln pot project guy now that, you know, just completely blew up his own audience. Um, Steve Hayes was also a never Trumper. But I think more reasonable. He never went Lincoln Project crazy. He just was like, Trump's not my thing. Uh, but but it was held against him. And all these guys who were on the Brett Baer special report panel slowly got removed because as Trump captured the Republican Party, people didn't want to hear from the never Trumpers all the time. I was like, look, he won. You know, the, well, let's keep in mind who the political enemy is. It's it's not the, the Trump supporters within the GOP. It's the Democrats. And so those publications started to fall and falter. And it wasn't, you know, it was, you could have predicted Weekly Standard was not going to withstand the Trump era. Well, uh, I think that in many cases, uh, there was um, a, 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 a fixation on Trump, uh, which wasn't helpful um, uh, for for the, the pundits uh, we're talking about. Um, but uh, the weekly standard have to close. I'm not so sure it had to, um, but uh, it did. And well, I mean, it could and, have been more like National Review, which I I had Rich right. Lowry on my show, The Kelly File, the night they published Never Trump. I mean, right. th- I believe that's where the phrase Never Trump came from, <laughs> the Never Trumpers. But National Review, while while quick to criticize Trump if they disagreed with him on various issues, once he won started to sound more like a normal conservative publication that had its issues with him, but understood the Republicans were not the enemy on these culture wars, on these political battles, on these economic tests. And so, you know, Charles C.W. Cook is one of my favorite commentators there is. He can't stand Trump, but I love listening to him on Trump or not Trump related issues because he's an honest broker and he'll tell you what he really thinks and he understands who he's really fighting. And it's it's not Donald Trump. So he would he would criticize him. But he would understand when Donald Trump did a good thing, that, that that was an appropriate thing to praise, right? Not like these blinded left wing commentators or never Trumpers who just couldn't see any good the man did. Yeah, I think that uh, it speaks to the change that happened not only uh, on the right and how Trump kind of forced the issue for a lot of people where you stood and what you were willing to uh, defend and to um, and to and to you know overlook or to also to say that you know the the goal was the policies and um not the personality um and it it basically forced a realignment within the republican party and the conservative movement made it much more populist made it much more um 
based on outsiders, um, the people who were in the periphery of the conservative movement 25 years ago are now at the center of it, are now in charge of it. Um, and that also coincides with this larger trend we were talking about, which was the uh, return in many ways of the ideas of the old right, of, of non-intervention, of, uh, of, of no overseas entanglements, of um, insulating the American economy from global economic pressures, uh, especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Uh, and of course, in an attitude toward immigration, illegal immigration in particular, um, that w wants to you know, secure the borders. Um, so the, the American right is a very different place than when I showed up uh, 20 years ago in Washington. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, because I not, wanted to not that find different out from how the it happened. Administration. Right. Not that not that different from the Coolidge administration, which we just opened the, the Harding and Coolidge, which we opened the discussion on uh, and you spent time on in the book. So it's interesting. We have been here before, not within our lifetime, but we as a country have seen a Republican Party that looks very much the way it looks now, at least on paper. You ask the following question. Is the American right the party of insiders or outsiders? Is the right the elites dash the men and women in charge of America's political, economic, social and cultural institutions? Or is it the people? And I, I made a note because in no if that's the definition of the elites, the people who are in charge of our political, economic, social, and cultural institutions, then no, th there's no question the right is not is not the elites because the right doesn't control any of those. I mean, they've all been seated to the left. The left has taken over. I mean, it depends on the, the day, but certainly political institutions today, they control the, the White House, they control the Congress, they can the House and the Senate. Uh, economic policies being driven by Joe Biden. Social. I mean, name me a social institution that the Republicans control. Cultural, all the university systems, not to mention it's, it's expanded. Media, completely controlled by the left. Sports, not to mention corporate America now, more and more aligning itself with leftist causes. If that's the definition, then the then the right cannot be the elites, right? Then the American then the American right has to be the party of outsiders slash the people. And I think that's where it is right now. I think that's where the right is now. Um, it wasn't always that way, you know. And again, going back to the 1920s, is one difference actually between today and the 1920s is that uh, the right was in charge and it was self confident. Uh, and uh, it was more than just the people uh, at that time. Um, but uh, when you look at the institutions you mentioned today, uh, for sure, um, the right is locked out of them. Um, that's not to say that the right is completely powerless. Um, you know, they don't have a majority in Washington, but there are many governors throughout the country, yeah. uh, many states. On a state, by state we, basis. Yeah. Um, you know, there are alternative media, right? Um, uh, there's podcasts like this, <laughs> there's, uh, um, uh, there's the Fox news channel there, you know, there are other institutions, but you, you're right that they, uh, are outweighed. The, the cultural mass is certainly on, um, the progressive left. Um, and so I would just say that this is a situation that the right has faced throughout its history ever since that new deal and that transformation of American government, um, the conservatives have had to find a way. Well, how do we maneuver in this new situation? And uh, there have been many successes. There have also been some failures. 
Um, I think right now the momentum is with the conservatives. It's with the right, um, precisely because uh, the the larger electorate is encountering the results of progressivism and not liking what they see. I mean, people mm-hmm. want to have, uh, you know, to afford their grocery bill. They want to send their kids to good schools and they want to live in neighborhoods with safe streets. And they don't have any of that now. <laughs> and right. so they're going to they're going to turn to the out party, which is the Republican Party. And the question then becomes, will Republicans and conservatives have solutions that they will be able to implement and that will effectively address these major concerns of the mm. public. And I worry sometimes that while the, the right today is very good at capturing the frustration, very good at pointing out what's going wrong, uh, I worry that they're not doing enough work to figure out what they have to do or what they're going to be able to do when they, when they have Congress um, uh, in, I believe, next year. Well, and it, I mean, is your argument that they should come up with a plan to do more? Because we've had a lot of conservative commentators on this show from all different walks of life. Uh, Peter Schiff was just on e- Economist talking about how what we what do we need from government? Nothing. Get them out of the way. Get them out. The politician left or right will be part of the problem in the, in the Reagan-esque way. Um, so what we need is a shrinking of government in every department. But could that realistically happen? Well, I mean, it's very hard, of course, in divided government, but I do think that the Republicans should be ready to say, well, this is going to be our budget. This is what we're going to uh, want to propose that government spend, not necessarily rush to have a fight over the debt ceiling, but have an alternative and say, this is what we want to do. Because if we know one thing about the spending, it's that it's driving the inflation. And so cut the spending uh, in addition to kind of making sure that the Fed does its job. But I also think there's a broader uh, agenda that needs to be done. How do how can the Republicans at the at the federal level give parents the tools they need to um, to to have successful uh, education for their children? Um, how do we address the deaths of despair that are still devastating this country that were made worse by the pandemic, mm. the fentanyl that's flowing over the border? Um, I think the Republicans need to spend more time talking about their solutions. And in the past, as I go through my book, conservatives have had the solutions. They had solutions to the stagflation of the 1970s. They had solutions to the crime wave that began in the 1960s. They had solutions to the growing welfare dependency that was also a feature of the second half of the 20th century. So I think in some cases, they're the same solutions that we can apply today. But uh, I would like to see more conservatives and more Republicans talking about the solutions. I think they will. I think Kevin McCarthy is doing a lot of work in forming these uh, ta- uh, task uh, groups, um, task forces to look to look into policy solutions. Because if if they don't have the solutions, um, if they don't have an affirmative policy agenda, I think people will get frustrated very quickly, mm-hmm. and um, the no none of these problems will be solved anytime soon. What is what does your look back tell you about how the culture wars are likely to play out? You know, right now the left is so focused on identity politics, skin color, gender, sexuality and so on, and the right is finally starting to push back on it. It's gone so hard left 
right? This race essentialism, this radical trans ideology, this forcing kink on five-year-olds in their classroom as if it's somehow illuminating or beneficial to them in any way. Um, I don't know. I've been I was talking about this with somebody recently. Have we ever gone back? Has the pendulum ever swung hard left only to come back? Or once it edges leftward, are we just stuck there? And, you know, we have dissenters, but but that's where we are for better or for worse. You look around in American society today and just take a look at, let me just take one thing because it's going to make me sound like an old lady, but who cares? Look at the nudity that's acceptable on television or at public events, right? Look at how women walk around dressed these days, whether it's the Oscars or just on the street, you know, with literally their butt cheeks hanging out wherever you go. You can't avoid it. I have a little boy. I have three little kids, but one's eight. You know, I don't want him seeing that. There's no avoiding. You turn on the Super Bowl, you turn on the Oscars, you turn on anything, you're going to see raunchy. You're going to see somebody smack another actor right across. You're going to see just the lowering of our cultural standards. When it comes to class, um, just a sort of a genteel manner, um, respect for one's self and others. What have you learned? What if what if anything did you learn on on that front? Well, I think if we're talking about manners and mores, um, there hasn't been much success in um, kind of stopping that uh, lowering of standards that you're discussing. Uh, And it's caused a lot of frustration among conservatives over the years. It's caused a lot of um, disillusionment and even despair about the state of America. Um, and I think that's a danger for the American right um, to become so frustrated uh, with the condition of American society that they lose all hope in it. Uh, they, they neglect to see the more positive aspects of America. Uh, I think that uh, on the culture wars, it depends on what issues you're talking about. Um, so we discussed manners and mores and for there, there's no denying, I think the degradation, um, throughout American society. But if you look at an issue, say abortion, right? Well, the pro-life movement, uh, which began in the aftermath of the road decision in 1973 is on the verge of perhaps having a, uh, amazing victory, Mm, uh, depending you know, depending on what what the Supreme Court rules in the Dobbs case in June. If you look at um, uh, guns, gun rights, uh, the transformation of the gun debate over the last 30 years, much less 60 years, is uh, remarkable. Um, Americans are much more protective of their Second Amendment rights um, and and uh, when it, whether it's concealed carry or constitutional carry, we, we offer much more liberty to gun owners uh, than we have before. If we think of the role of um, affirmative action, um, here too, there's uh, the potential for uh, a Supreme Court case in the next term uh, to really roll back affirmative action. So uh, I do think that there are some um, green shoots, but I do think that there are also um, signs of uh, of decay and things to be worried about. I worry about the cl- the collapse in religious attendance mm-hmm. and religious affiliation. I, I want to see that come back. Um, and I worry that it's, it might not for a long time. One thing I, I do take from my history is that uh, Ecclesiastes is right. There's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. And um, you can find precedent for almost every fight we're having in America today. You can find precedent for 
various situations and conditions in America today. And on one hand, that means that we don't make much progress. Uh, but I'm a conservative and I don't really believe in progress anyway. <laughs> uh, the, on the other hand, it means that we've been here before and we've gotten through it and we'll get through it again because this is the United States of America. And what I worry so much about is uh, parts of the right losing the faith in the United States of America and its constitution and its political principles. And I think that's when we need to, to anchor conservatives and the right um, now and uh forever. Matt, thank you so much. Well said, well written. I'm so glad you wrote this book. Uh, it would make a great gift or to yourself or to somebody else. Uh, I, I, would, I got it just for myself and I recommend you do the same. It's called The Right and it's out today. Matt Continetti, all the best. Thank you. Coming up, the latest on the Hunter Biden investigation. Will it reach the White House? The man who's been on this from the start, Peter Schweitzer, is here next. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has a over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds in stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's ARKseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. Arcseedkits.com. Since 2018, author Peter Schweitzer has been looking into the Biden family's overseas business deals. Can you imagine what a morass that has been and his fortitude to even take it on, never mind actually understand it? No one knows more about these investigations or explains them better than Peter, not Ron Johnson, not Chuck Grassley, no one. Uh, Peter firmly believes that criminal charges are heading Hunter's way. Uh, Peter's president of the Government Accountability Institute and author of Red Handed, How American Elites Get Right, Helping China Win. Welcome, Peter. Great to have you here. Great to be with you, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I really enjoy your podcast and listening to you, and you are very good at explaining such a dense subject matter. It's like, I don't know how you've done it for years. And um, I heard you joking recently that, you know, the good news is four years after you got onto this, the mainstream media <laughs> has finally come along. So maybe four years from now, they'll finally come along on China, right? <laughs> which is what you put your other book on. <laughs> we could always hope, Megan, right? We could always hope. Yes. Hope springs eternal. So <laughs> I, I think one of the fascinating things you've been talking about lately is because I had uh, Ron Johnson on the show, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, and he I'm like, let's talk about the the tie, the evidence that Joe Biden's tied to any of this. And it was pretty weak sauce. You know, it was mostly opinion. You know, he he gave a few things. 
you're, I think, a lot stronger on the specifics. You know, I'm a lawyer. I, I don't want opinion. I don't want like rhetoric. I want show me actual right. evidence that he knew about any of Hunter's dealings or benefited from it. And that's where you come in. But let me just start with a broader picture, because I know you do believe, given the New York Times reporting on this, finally, the Washington Post finally coming on board, that they did that for a very good reason. Um, and what is that reason? Yeah, I think the reason is that Team Biden wants to get ahead of the story. Um, think about it, Megan. We first started reporting on this in 2018, and the Biden team has ignored this story from the beginning, uh, and they've obscured it, or they've said that first there were no deals, then they said there were deals, but Hunter made no money, then they said that Hunter didn't talk to his dad about it, then they shifted to, well, his dad didn't make any money on it. Uh, the bottom line is that they have ignored this story. So suddenly, about you know four or five weeks ago now, the New York Times runs a piece that has the fingerprints of the Biden legal team all over it. Uh, the big revelation there, of course, was that the laptop was real. Uh, they admitted and acknowledged that. But if you read the story, the story is all framed in the context of, yes, uh, he didn't pay his taxes. Yes, there are these other legal concerns. But, you know, Hunter has paid back the taxes that he owed, and judges usually don't send people to jail for a very long time if they've paid their back taxes. That, to me, all stinks of just getting ahead of the story. They're mm -hmm. commenting on it. They're working with The New York Times on it, and they're trying to frame it now. The fallback position is that Hunter may have done some illegal things, uh, including failing to pay, pay millions of dollars in taxes, uh, but it's going to be okay because... Um, they are messaging it accordingly. So that, to me, is squarely evidence that they are very concerned that Hunter is, in fact, going to be indicted on some of these charges. Much better for them if they're like, you know, he's just like you. He may not have paid every <laughs> dollar owed in tax, but don't we all hate the IRS? And look, he made good on it. So move along. And you've been arguing that's not the story at all. That is a head fake. Yeah. And we'll get into why, why you say it matters so much more than whether he paid his damn taxes or not. Let me just show the audience the evidence um, of what you just said. Joe Biden's evolving story on his son's overseas roles. And people should keep in mind, they did not just take place when Joe Biden was, quote, a private citizen in between the vice presidency and the presidency. A lot of the China stuff goes back in Ukraine, too to when he was the sitting vice president. Um, and so and if the mainstream media would do its job and cover this, everyone would know this. But let's just talk about his evolving story, because there was Biden in 2019, Joe Biden in 2019, claiming despite the fact that he had a you know, 12 to 16 hour ride over to Asia to China with his son right. on Air Force right. Two. Like, what did they talk about? Oh, have you, you know, have you seen the new whatever Avengers movie? No, he said he's never discussed Hunter's business dealings overseas. Never. OK, he said that in 2019. Here it is. Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. Do you stand by your statement that you did not discuss any of your son's overseas business yes, dealings? Yes, I stand by that statement. Honestly, Peter, it's like they were sitting next to each other on Air Force Two, and he's like, what are you doing here? What are what Hunter? What is, who let you on board? Why are you coming? Right. Yeah. Why, why are you on this plane, Hunter, with me on Air Force Two? Yeah. No, it's 
it's ridiculous on the surface of it. And the problem with Hunter, uh, with Joe Biden's denials is that Hunter Biden himself uh, admitted to The New Yorker that he had discussed his business dealings, at least the Ukraine ones with his father. And then, Megan, you start looking at the Hunter Biden laptop and you look at the email collection from one of Hunter Biden's business partners, a guy, Evan Cooney, uh, who went to jail, uh, gave us access to his Gmail account, just went into the Gmail account and were, were able to look around. Uh, and you find that there are numerous examples of Joe Biden as vice president of the United States at the time meeting with Hunter Biden's business partners. And so the question is, Megan, you know, Hunter Biden shows up in the White House with these foreign nationals from China or from Ukraine. Uh, and his father doesn't ask them who they are or why right. they're there. I mean, it's absurd. It's patently absurd. Um, and this is part of the problem, I think, is that the media was not on this story. Joe Biden continually, I mean, I hate to use it, but it's true. He continually lied uh, about the relationships that his son had and the fact that he did not discuss them with his son. Uh, and now we're at a point where the media is trying to play catch up. But the, the sitting president of the United States does have these uh, entanglements. His family has these financial entanglements that include some, you know, very troublesome figures in China and elsewhere. Like everybody is a troublesome figure. You, you've talked about that and written about that, too. Everyone about, around Hunter Biden is a troublesome figure. I know you guys played on your podcast the the game um, Criminal or Spy, right? Was that it? Criminal or Spy? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, it just... But you look at the China deals uh, and, and think about this in the context of the Cold War, Megan. I'm, I'm certainly old enough to remember the Cold War. And uh, imagine if Jimmy Carter's family or Ronald Reagan's family uh, had done business deals with Russian businessmen linked to the KGB. I mean, there'd be alarm bells going off everywhere. If you look at the deals that we know that Hunter Biden and the Biden family got based on the laptop, based on the material that Senator Johnson's committee got from the Treasury Department, you know, which shows the actual transference of money, uh, you're looking at $31 million. But the, the real troublesome factor is not just the money. Who made those deals happen? Or as my kids would say, who made it rain for the Bidens in China? And it becomes very clear these were not just random deals that Hunter stumbled on in Shanghai or Beijing. Uh, there are four businessmen that feature prominently in the in the email. And when you look at those businessmen, who they are, you look at public source information in China, in Hong Kong, and in the United States, you find out that all four of those businessmen in China who made the Biden deals happen have links to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. That's not a random act. Uh, that indicates to me that this was uh, uh, an effort by Beijing and what they call elite capture. Uh, mm -hmm. They're trying to forge these financial bonds with prominent American politicians, including the Bidens. And once they form that bond, it gives them leverage. And uh, those politicians end up doing a lot of things that Beijing wants because of that leverage. OK, so we're going to get into all that because it's fascinating. But before we leave the Joe Biden denials lies, as you say. Uh, I've never discussed the Hunter business deals. No one believes that. Then flash forward to the 2020, one of the 2020 debates and his he couldn't even get his messaging straight there. First, he claimed it, it had changed from I've never discussed it to, well, I, I have never taken a penny. I mean, as from look at me, I'm fine. I'm clean. Here's that soundbite four. I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever in my life. I have not taken a single penny from any country whatsoever. OK, so then we went back 
to see, well, what did he say about Hunter? And the lies continued. Listen to what he said about Hunter 2020 debate. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about uh, what are you talking about? China. I have not had it. The only guy made money from China is this guy. He's the only one. Nobody else has made money from China. My son has not made money from China. Let's start with that one. Yeah, uh, the money doesn't lie. Uh, This is, uh, I think, the importance of what Senator Johnson's committee did uh, because he has subpoena power and he used it. And by the way, he deserves a lot of credit. This is kind of a thankless job in D.C. Nobody likes to pursue these kinds of issues because they're afraid it's going to blow back on somebody on their own side. Uh, But what they showed very clearly is based on the U.S. Treasury Department suspicious activity reports, which was money going into Hunter Biden's account, is that he was taking in millions of dollars from Chinese interests. So Joe Biden is flat out lying when he says that. When was when was Hunter taking in the millions from China? Uh, Well, we know based on the SARS that they started coming in 2016, 2017 and 2018. Uh, he also had a deal in place uh, on that famous ride on Air Force Two in December of 2013. He was given a 10% ownership stake in a Chinese financial management company that was funded by the Chinese government. Uh, we know that stake was worth $20 million. Now, he sold that stake in 2021 after his father became president, but that's him receiving money in compensation as well. And here's the other thing, Megan, when Joe Biden says, I've never taken a dime of foreign money, in a legal way, that's technically true. But he's also being deceptive here because what the emails show is that Hunter Biden was taking foreign money and Hunter Biden was paying some of his father's bills while he was vice president of the United States. He was paying some monthly bills and he was also paying for things like renovations on his home in Delaware. So he may not have directly taken foreign money, but he was a beneficiary, a direct beneficiary of foreign money that his son was receiving while he was vice president of the United States. So this is fascinating because you gleaned that, yes, in part from what Ron Johnson got, but also from the laptop, the laptop in which the press had absolutely no interest other than to tell us to look away, to shield our eyes. It would be suppressed on Twitter, any discussion of it. And had the media been doing its job prior to the election, they would have seen what you've seen on the laptop, which proves there is a connection between the money hunters taking in and the way Joe Biden, the man who wanted to be president and won the election, was living. Who was paying his bills? Was it dirty money? Was it money from China? Was it money meant to exert influence? So to walk us through, you just referenced them in passing, but like what's on there that suggests Biden, the elder, was benefiting from the money's Hunter was taking it? Well, uh, Megan, it comes in a couple of levels. First of all, there are uh, some of the comments that Hunter makes. Uh, there's a message exchange that he has with his daughter, his daughter at the time, is in her early 20s, and she's asking her father for money. Most parents are experiencing this mm-hmm. when they have kids that age. Uh, and Hunter says to him, you know, I don't have a lot of money to send you right now, uh, but don't worry. When you get older, I'm not going to do to you what Pop, meaning Joe Biden, has me do, which is to give uh, me give him half of my paycheck. Um, that's a pretty blunt statement. It's probably a little bit of hyperbole. But there's evidence to show that that's actually true. I don't know that he's actually giving him half of his paycheck, 
Uh, but we know that there are monthly bills that he is paying. It's it's clear uh, in the emails. And we know that there are renovations done uh, to the home in Delaware. What we've been able to calculate, Megan, based on sort of very explicit, non-cryptic financial transactions, uh, you're talking about uh, tens of thousands of dollars that we can confirm. There's undoubtedly more. The emails also indicate that Joe and Hunter Biden, again, while Joe Biden is vice president of the United States, uh, had a joint bank account. Uh, and the man that is handling Joe Biden's bank account, finances, taxes, et cetera, is a guy named Eric Schwerin, uh, who is who? He's Hunter Biden's business partner. So you've got this merging of financial interests mm. that's taking place. And of course, let's remember also, Megan, that Hunter Biden's taking in money from China. He takes about two million of that and sends that to James Biden, who is Joe Biden's brother. We don't know if James Biden is also paying uh, some of Joe Biden's bills. Mm. So uh, this is crying out uh, for attention. Um, it is illegal, by the way, fundamentally illegal, according to federal law, for a politician to have their lifestyle subsidized by family members. They can buy them the occasional birthday gift or Christmas gift, but you cannot be paying their monthly bills with your business. That is flat out illegal. Um, and that's what the Bidens were engaging in. Yeah, because for this very reason, I mean, in part, they don't want foreign adversaries trying to curry favor with or get blackmail info on a, a sitting politician through the family member. Right. And that's exactly what we have to worry about here. By the way, what an ingrate Hunter Biden is. He should give half of his money. over. I really just guess the luck. <laughs> but not, a, not a penny of that would have originated with him if it hadn't been for the old man. Well, that 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 is absolutely true. And by the way, let me just say, you know, when the media says, oh, well, we couldn't verify the laptop. Um, they could have verified the laptop. They chose not to. I mean, the New York Post, of course, brought in forensic scientists that showed that the laptop was accurate and real. When we got the laptop, uh, Megan, what we did is we took the laptop and we measured it up against existing bodies of information that we knew were true. So, for example, Senator Johnson's committee, at about the same time the laptop became public, uh, released uh, Hunter Biden's Secret Service travel records, which, of course, mm -hmm. are secret. Only the Secret Service had them at the time. We said, well, we wonder, does the Hunter Biden laptop actually match what the Secret Service is telling us? So when the laptop says, you know, Hunter's in Dubai or going to Dubai or came from Dubai, is that actually reflected in the Secret Service travel records? It lined up 100 percent. Uh, so in other words, you can't fake that or make that up. Oh, Same wow. thing with the financial transactions that uh, Senator Johnson's committee, we looked at the laptop. When the laptop said you know, $5 million was, was wired by Mr. Zhao in Beijing to Hunter Biden, sure enough, it shows up on the SAR. So the point is, they could have done this. We did it. They chose not to. It was an active choice they made because they did not want this story to come out. And you're talking about, they were, you're not talking about like daily rags. You're talking about 60 minutes. Leslie Stahl directly to the sitting president. It can't be verified. Trump saying, what do you mean it can't be verified? Yes, it can be verified. She, she was just too lazy or disinterested or more accurately interested in the outcome of the, of the election going her way to do it. The New York Times, the yep. Washington Post, the same. These are the country's most revered, respected news organizations who, and this is why people say the election was rigged. I mean, yep. there, there was a massive story brewing 
happening in that laptop. It wasn't Russian disinformation. And the media worked collectively to suppress all of it. It's not just Hunter's a loser that we knew. It's so much bigger than that. So let me ask you, there's so much to get through. Can you give us and I know you're, you're so neck deep in it, but can you give us an overview? Because I know it's Ukraine, it's China, it's Russia. Yeah. Um, of yeah. what Hunter was doing in each place. And let's start with what I think is the easiest, which is Russia has to do with the, the mayor of Moscow's widow, who's herself an oligarch worth over a billion bucks. And uh, yes, I, I heard it alleged she gave him three point five million dollars. Uh, Hunter's organization, his, his corporation, they, they never give it to him directly. Um, and then they denied that, you know, the, the Biden team denied that. But that appears to be true. And yeah. in addition to that, you you mentioned it earlier, but you found papers suggesting he may have been somehow laundering. Maybe that's too strong a term. Tens of millions for this woman. The, the connection in Russia may be a lot deeper than was first reported. Uh, yeah, that's right, Megan. I mean, let's remember this grand jury that's meeting in Delaware is looking at Hunter Biden on tax evasion. They're also said to be investigating money laundering. Uh, and this is very interesting because if you look at the trial of Hunter Biden's uh, business partner, Devin Archer, that was held in 2016, uh, there was a lot of corporate records and information that came out from that trial. We had a researcher there that pulled all those records. And one of the things that shows is this, this company, Burnham Asset Management, that Hunter Biden and Devin Archer co-founded together. Uh, this is where the $3.5 million was wired by Elena Baturina. Elena Baturina is the ex-wife of the former mayor of Moscow. Uh, our State Department under Barack Obama declared that she has links to over organized crime. So, I mean, this is not, you know, a, a, a typical ordinary businesswoman. Uh, but these records in the court trial, uh, according to Burnham, you have Devin Archer saying that they are handling, in his words, handling hundreds of millions of dollars for Elena Baturina. That's in the corporate records. Now, you know, is he lying? I mean, we don't know. But these are the corporate records of the company. We also know as it relates to Russia in the emails that Hunter Biden was seeking to do business with other pro-Putin oligarchs, Oleg Deripaska. Uh, he reached out to him and say, hey, we would love to do business together. Uh, so the point is, and I try to make this you know, point rich, large, when Team Biden says, well, Hunter is an international businessman. You know, he's not doing business in London or Tokyo or Seoul, South Korea. He is going to the most corrupt far reaches of the planet, where, by the way, his father has enormous sway on foreign policy, places like Russia, Ukraine and China. And let's remember, under Barack Obama, President Obama anointed explicitly and publicly Joe Biden is the point person mm -hmm. on U.S. policy towards Ukraine and China. That is not a coincidence. And before we get to the dealings in Ukraine and China, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Hunter was suddenly a cause celeb in Ukraine, in Russia, <laughs> in China. And I've heard you yeah. make this point, too, that there there are a lot of legitimate business deals to be had with uh, foreign companies and w with you know foreign companies. Uh, executives from foreign countries. Um, however, yeah. there's a reason that all of the ones Hunter was involved in were so sketchy. What is it? Yeah. Yeah. They're so sketchy because uh, they are e either linked to organized crime, uh, corrupt foreign oligarchs or foreign intelligence services. And 
All you have to look at, Megan, is again, there are people, American businessmen go around the world, they're doing deals all the time. They bring something to the table. Hunter Biden and the Biden family brings nothing to the table other than Joe Biden and Joe Biden's position of political power. So in these emails, whether it's Ukraine, China, or Russia, you never see a discussion of, frankly, legitimate business services that they're going to provide. Uh, they're not bringing any expertise. They're not bringing any of their own capital to these deals. They're basically taking this foreign money uh, and talking about the fact that Joe Biden is at some time vice president of the United States or maybe president of the United States at some future time. So what they're selling is Joe Biden. Exactly right, because you can get legitimate access if you're, you know, some respected foreign bank through the front door. You don't have to go through the back right. door. You don't have to deal with Hunter Biden, the loser kid who everybody knew is addicted to drugs and prostitutes and all sorts of problems. They did that because that was a potential opening to get access to, quote, the big guy and then even better, possibly to get financial leverage over the big guy. If I mean, what a dream for the Chinese, if you can get the son taking your money and then giving it to the dad. I mean, that's a dream while he's the sitting vice president or possibly about to run for president, which is, in fact, what happened, that he was doing this stuff while he was gearing up to run for president and then he would win. So we need to know what what leverage, if any, do they have over him? Yeah, they have enormous leverage. And part of that is because we know uh, several things about Hunter's relationship with his dad. One is they're very close. Uh, and I think that's very admirable in a lot of respects. But that means Joe Biden really cares uh, about his son and his reputation and his standing. That's part of where the leverage comes from for Beijing. The second part of it is, is that Joe and Hunter Biden uh, are very close in terms of how they spend time together. Uh, Hunter Biden was on Air Force Two a lot uh, when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. He showed up at critical times. They discuss things uh, in the laptop in a very detailed and intimate level. That's another form of leverage. Uh, and the third form of leverage is these deals stink and they look shady. People are wiring money to Hunter Biden. Uh, there's one individual that send, sends $5 million to uh, one of Hunter's businesses. Uh, and the entire email exchange is Hunter's business partners saying he doesn't want to do deals with us. He only wants to deals, do deals with you and with your family. Uh, so all three of those give Beijing enormous leverage over the Biden family. And when you add to that fact that these businessmen are linked to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence, that's what should set off the alarm bells everywhere. Um, one guy, for example, um, who Hunter calls the super chairman uh, in the emails, he says at one point to a friend, I don't believe in the lottery anymore, but I believe in the super chairman. Uh, and the super chairman uh, arranges a, a $20 million deal uh, for Hunter. Uh, well, as he's arranging that deal for Hunter Biden, he is at the exact same time business partners with the vice minister for state security, which is the runs the entire spy apparatus of China. And this gentleman is responsible for foreign recruitment, for recruiting foreign nationals to spy on behalf of China. Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of people that Hunter Biden is openly and gladly dealing with in China to collect millions of dollars. And that, to me, is the strongest evidence that Hunter Biden is, in fact, compromised uh, and Beijing has some leverage over his father. And just on the timeline, to clarify, uh, for sure, the Ukrainian stuff was happening 
when Joe yeah. Biden was the sitting vice president. When did the Russia stuff happen with the Moscow mayor's ex-wife, billionaire oligarch ex-wife tied to mobs? Yeah. I mean, it's like so crazy. Yeah. But when was that? Yeah, it, it, it all began uh, when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. So Elena Baccarino, those discussions started in 2013, 2014. Those deals started again and consummated in 2015. The money flow started in 2016. Uh, the China deal is the same way. Uh, Hunter Biden in 2011, 2012, starts showing up in Beijing, China, meeting the equivalents of the you know Treasury Secretary in Washington, the head of J.P. Morgan, the head of Citibank, the head of Goldman Sachs. That's when Hunter Biden started cultivating and developing those relationships, and those deals started happening in late 2013. So this all happened when he was vice president. Mm. The one deal with China that happened after Joe Biden left the vice presidency was the one with CEFC, where there's the reference mm. to 10% for the big guy. Okay. Uh, those discussions started when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, but that deal was consummated in 2017, shortly after he left the vice presidency. The um, the the Moscow mayor's, mayor's ex-wife, I remembered this from, um, hold on a second. Yeah, I'm just reading. Okay. From the debate, the presidential debate that Chris Wallace hosted between uh, Biden and Trump and Trump raised it. Trump said, I, uh, my team just pulled the transcript up for me. Uh, he says, also, while we're, we're at it, why is it uh, just out of curiosity that the mayor of Moscow's wife gave your son three and a half million dollars? Joe Biden, that is not true. Donald Trump, <laughs> what did he do to deserve it? What did he do? Joe, Vice President Joe Biden, none of that is true. And there's Chris Wallace jumping in. Uh, telling Trump to let Biden answer the other question, the back and forth and so on, and not trying to get an answer to that question. Wouldn't that have been nice? He yeah. didn't. So he the, so neither Hunter Biden nor any entity in which Hunter Biden has uh, a financial or controlling interest received three point five million dollars from this woman. Are you saying that on the record? I mean, I would have loved to have heard that follow up, but he's already denied it. He's denied it. And it's not true. His denial is false. Yeah, no, that's right. And the presumption in all of these instances was in favor of the Bidens. There was never a journalist that was prepared to call them out based on documentary evidence. I mean, here's the, the thing that's so shocking. In the case of the $3.5 million from Elena Bajarina, uh, that didn't come from the laptop. That didn't come from uh, Russian disinformation, as everybody alleged. Where did it come from? It came from the United States Treasury Department which flagged that money being transferred from a sketchy source to Hunter Biden's firm. And the reason it was flagged, it, it was a suspicious activity report, is precisely because this foreign money source is deemed to be either linked to organized crime, linked to some sort of criminal activity, or to be uh, highly questionable of some nature. Uh, and yet Chris Wallace could have simply asked that. He could have said, but wait a minute, there's a Treasury Department report that says three and a half million dollars came from this source to your son. What was the purpose of that money? Yes. But Chris Wallace, of course, didn't ask it. Can you imagine if there was a three point five million dollar transfer to Donald Trump Jr., to Eric right. Trump? <laughs> the, I mean, yeah. 
The fact yeah. that this me it just sh- it shows you everything that they spent two it, it, years it lying to us about a fake, a made up Russiagate investigation, you know, trying to tie Donald Trump to the Russians made up originating with Hillary Clinton and her campaign. And then this where it shows an actual potential compromise for the sitting son, for the son of the of the man who was vice president and wants to be president. And they don't care at all. All they won't even they yeah. tamp it down when it's asked at a presidential debate and they're not even the one who raised it. Yeah. Now, and, and here's the thing. Let's really put this in stark form, Megan, because you raise a crucial point here. If you look at Russiagate, the entire thing was based on this anonymous sourced dossier that was put together by Christopher Steele. We know now who paid for it. We know the origin of it. But just think of it from a journalistic standpoint. There was no sourcing. There were no documents. They didn't name who these anonymous people were claiming all this stuff about Donald Trump and his activities. So it's in in terms of something you can use journalistically or in terms of investigation, it's a zero. It's a nothing. And yet they became so obsessed and enamored with this in the media and with certain government organs. This became the obsession for a couple of years. And I have to say, when they first mentioned the Russiagate stuff, you know, about Donald Trump, I was one of those people that say, we have to look at this. The, the, yeah, the charges are so serious. Of course. But, but that was all they had it based on. So anonymous sources, uh, nothing to it. This one dossier, that was it. Contrast that with what you have on the Bidens. Just objectively speaking, you actually have money transfers. You didn't have money transfers with the Steele dossier. You had speculation. You actually have millions of dollars that our Treasury Department says went from these foreign sources to Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden connected businesses. That's simply a fact. You've got laptops that indicate conversations off-the-book meetings set up with Hunter Biden business partners with his father. You didn't Repeatedly. have any of that with the Steele dossier. So it's overwhelming how it was tilted in one side, but they embraced one that had no evidence and they reject the other one that has all kinds of granular evidence. The dereliction is so patent and it matters. It does matter. Uh, Peter says that one of the aspects of this story that the media is missing is, as I mentioned at the top, this isn't about tax evasion. It's about actually China manipulating the son of a of a sitting politician, right? Once the vice president, now the president uh, to its advantage and Hunter Biden willingly going along to help a foreign adversary in ways that may be to the detriment of the United States. That's serious. And we're going to get into it right after this. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has a over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds in stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family 
family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's arkseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. arkseedkits.com. All right, so we touched on Russia and what Hunter was doing there. And um, on China, you mentioned the CEFC, which is this energy company that he was completely tied to through his own corporate entities. That was when Joe Biden was private citizen Joe Biden. But as you point out, his dealings with China well predated that. And that's an important piece of the story that I hadn't even been focused on. So can you give us an overview of just how tied uh, Hunter Biden was to China outside of the CEFC thing where, you know, everybody involved is like has either been disappeared or has been charged, including on his side. I mean, like the Chinese officials are no longer around his side. People have gone to jail. You know, it's the height of sketch or as my 11 uh, year old daughter would say, <laughs> sussy baka. It's sussy baka. <laughs> yeah, she, she needs to be doing an analysis. I think that's a pretty good assessment of, <laughs> of what's uh, going on here. Yeah, I mean, Hunter Biden's dealings in China began in 2011, 2012. Uh, as best we've been able to find, his first deal was secured in 2013. That's when he was given an ownership stake and a board seat in a investment firm called BHR. BHR is entirely funded by the Chinese government. Uh, it was very it was a very special fund at the time. It got a special status in the Shanghai free trade zone that no other firm had on the planet. Uh, and it started making all kinds of deals uh, that advanced Chinese interests. Uh, so, for example, Hunter Biden's firm, BHR, took a uh, early anchor investment stake in a Chinese company called CGN, China General Nuclear. Uh, CGN is an atomic power company, as the name implies. Uh, the problem is about a year after Hunter Biden's firm invests in it, uh, the FBI charges CGN and senior executives with stealing nuclear secrets in the United States. Oh, great. And this makes okay. Yeah, this kind of fits the pattern. I mean, the other investments they make, they, they go in and they buy uh, a uh, American manufacturing company called Hennigus that produces dual use technologies that have both civilian and military application. They invest in mining companies that help China acquire uh, precious uh, minerals that they are trying to get at the expense of the United States. So this is not just some sort of random electronics firm in China. This is an investment firm where Hunter Biden sits on the board uh, that is making investments advancing Chinese state interests. Then you also have another, uh, that's about a $20 million deal. Then you have another $5 million deal involving uh, Hunter's firm Burnham, where $5 million is wired by a gentleman named Mr. Zhao uh, to Hunter's firm. What's interesting is that money, Megan, is wired from an account that Mr. Zhao has a business in. That business, his business partner, is the family of the former Minister of State Security, which is the guy that runs not just the CIA of China, the FBI, the NSA, everything. Uh, so that gentleman is wiring $5 million to Hunter Biden. 
Um, and th- those are the beginning of the China deals that Hunter Biden secures in Beijing. And as we've seen, some of that money is being used to subsidize his father's lifestyle while he's vice president of the United States. Right. And I mean, we saw the email later uh, when Joe Biden is, quote, private citizen Joe Biden, but he's about to run for president. 10 um, percent to the big guy. But yeah. even back then, you know, you re- referenced the email to his daughter. I've been paying half my salary to the dad. And I know this is a smaller item, but it's you have the proof in black and white of the cell phone bills, right, that he was paying Joe Biden's cell phone bills, which is a little weird and had been doing it for years and years and years. And it only stopped, I guess, in that period where Joe Biden went into private citizen mode and then he started to pay for hunters. But like that's in black and white that we know that he was doing that. He was paying Joe's cell phone bills. Yeah, and that's kind of weird, Megan, on a couple levels. First, the bill is $320 a month, which is pretty big for a cell phone bill. Indicates to me that he's got uh, this the ability to receive cell phone calls from around the world. That bill's being paid by Hunter's business, by his firm. And um, you have to ask the question, why does the vice president of the United States need a separate phone uh, that is funded by his son's business? Uh, And to my mind, it's probably because that was their direct means of communication. And we know based on the laptops that there were meetings, that Joe Biden had meetings in the Obama White House with business people that Hunter was either doing business with or Hunter wanted to do business with. These were individuals from Ukraine and also from China that those individuals say they met with Joe Biden in the White House. But when you look at the official White House visitor logs, those meetings don't show up. So they were making efforts to have off the books meetings in the White House with Hunter Biden's business partners. Uh, that that reeks of cover up, if you ask me. Then it seemed that seemed to happen repeatedly with that, with the meetings happening when Joe Biden was in the White House and then suddenly they weren't there. I'm just looking at my outline here in 2011. Devin Archer, uh, Hunter's business partner, um, let's see was able or or hunter devon or or hunter able to deliver 30 members of the chinese entrepreneurs club and they uh, to the, they visited the white house on november 14th 2011 uh, according to white house visitor logs but these logs fail to disclose precisely with whom those chinese entrepreneurs met joe biden himself right this is from you um then we get let's see uh then, of course, there was 2015. Hunter Biden invite, invites a bevy of foreign oligarchs, including the former uh, mayor of Moscow, Yuri Lushkovs, and his billionaire wife, who you mentioned, to dinner at Cafe Milano in Washington, D.C. Great restaurant. You should go there if you go through D.C. Yeah. Um, yep. The Russians did not wind up attending, but others, um, ol- oligarchs from Kazakh did and the Ukrainians did, and they were able to meet with Vice President Joe Biden in the secluded garden room. You go on to say, as with other meetings uh, uh, with Hunter Biden's foreign business associations, Joe Joe Biden conveniently uh, did not disclose the garden room meeting on his official schedule and on it goes. So it's and then when caught because he was caught and that this doesn't even touch on the Ukrainian uh Burisma visit to the White mm-hmm. House, which he also didn't put in the White House visitor log, Joe Biden. And when caught, the White House just said, oh, I, we're, not, we're not we don't know about that meeting. That wasn't in the log. So they've been lying to <laughs> They're gaslighting us. 
<laughs> they really are. Uh, and, you know, honestly, you have to kind of wonder, Megan, I mean, you've been in journalism for a long time. You know a lot of people in journalism. It's kind of a, a, a horrible case of kind of spousal abuse where the Bidens keep continuously lying and abusing the media. And you wonder, when are they going to kind of stand up and say, we're tired of this? We're tired yes. of them making us look like fools, lying to us, changing their stories. Uh, and we just kind of happily go along. I do feel like it's maybe starting to turn a little bit. Uh, and I think part of that is because it, the New York Times is is now proclaimed from on high. The laptop is real, even though it's been known for a couple of years. But I also think within the Democratic Party establishment, and let's face it, a lot of these media figures have at least social relationships uh, with people in the Democratic Party establishment. I think there's increasing uh, acceptance of the fact that Joe Biden is weighing down the Democratic Party, weighing down the ticket. He's probably not going to be the guy at the top of the ticket in 2024. Uh, and I think there are moves to to basically jettison him, to kick him to the side. You think uh, so? And that's why I think, yes, I do. I really think you're going to start seeing that. His okay, polling numbers are horrible. Wait, but let me ask you about it. Okay, because I was asked about this recently by my pal, my pal Dan Wooden over on GB News, and there was yep. a think piece about whether this is all really an effort to get rid of him because he's terrible in terms of the polls, like when 33 percent approval rating, you, you don't win reelection at that. Um, right. But I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that this is an effort by you know the Times and the Post to start laying the groundwork to get rid of him because and I've heard you talk about this, too. The pieces were they were they were puff pieces for him. It was like, let's break yeah. this. So we can be on record with a laptop because we know an indictment's coming, but in the gentlest way possible for Joe Biden. And I mean, both of them bent over backwards, say no connection to Joe Biden, no benefit to him. This is the loser son. And that's my word. Right. I didn't say that. But, you know, and and like you pointed out before, it's tax evasion, it's tax evasion. you know, so <laughs> I was like, it doesn't read to me like the beginning of a let's, let's oust Joe Biden campaign. It reads to me like Joe Biden's using the media to distance himself from his son's nefarious dealings because they all know an indictment's likely to come. Yeah, I mean, you certainly could be right about that. The stories have not been harsh. They've not been critical, but they're starting to actually cover them. I mean, you had the the Washington Post run the story on, you know, shocking revelation, the Biden's link to Chinese energy deal. They ran this a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. even though the New York Post had run that story in 2020. Um, there, there starts to be a sort of circling and understanding that there's probably going to be some issues here. And I think a lot of it's going to come down, Megan, to what happens with this grand jury. I still think one of the great things about our system, and there are many, is the fact that we have a jury of our peers. And there is a group of regular Americans in Delaware who have been hearing all of this material involving Hunter Biden and the Biden family. And we know based on some leak, leaked information that the jurors asked at one point who actually is the big guy in these emails. So it's gonna be very interesting to see what this grand jury comes back with. They're going to make a recommendation uh, and then the prosecutor is going to decide in consultation with the Department of Justice. And we know how political that is. But if the grand jury were to come back and say, we see tax evasion, we see money laundering, we see political corruption and or we see that he failed to file as a foreign agent. He's doing all of these lobbying like activities. That's what they got Manafort on. Exactly what they got Manafort on. If the grand jury comes back with that. It's going to be really hard to squeeze that toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, Merrick Garland's going to have, I think, a real hard time justifying 
you know, copping some deal uh, with Hunter Biden. So we'll see. But I, I have a lot of faith in our judicial system and with the uh, the grit and the common sense of average Americans. And it's going to be interesting to see what this grand jury has to say. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe Biden couldn't put an end to this prosecution being done, not prosecution, but investigation right now before the grand jury being done by this U.S. attorney in Delaware, because it would have made him look terrible. I mean, it would have been. Yes shocking for him to pull this guy. Um, And so now he's going to be stuck with the result because we're going to find out one way or the other. It's been going on for a long time, but we are going to find out one way or the other what the guy's conclusions are. We haven't yet touched on Ukraine. I've been dying to ask you a question. We now know that Hunter was getting 50 grand a month from Burisma. He had no oil and gas expertise, but that was the kind of company on whose board he was sitting. And um I know others have made the link. I've heard you make the link about then Joe Biden goes and fires this prosecutor who's looking into Burisma, among other corporations, and says it's because this guy's bad and we don't believe he's the he's going to clean up anything. We think he's corrupt. Um, But I've heard you say, oh, it's too coincidental. It happened like he fired this guy um, and basically protected Burisma right after Hunter gets all these windfalls from the company. But um. Others have said, like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the mm-hmm. EU, they were all complaining about this guy. So doesn't that yeah. undermine? I'm with you. I get that, that he was getting this is grift, mm-hmm. the 50 grand. But tying to the, what Joe Biden did to the prosecutor, I'm not convinced because not all those entities would have had an interest in covering up for Hunter or making sure Hunter's money continued to flow to Hunter and possibly slash Joe. No, you're right. I mean, look, we know that the prosecutor in question uh, was not a good, clean prosecutor. He was Mm -hmm. a corrupt prosecutor. That's absolutely true. We also know that he was at the time, and there's documentary evidence for this, he was at the time investigating Burisma, which is the firm where Hunter Biden was on the board of directors. So those two facts are, are, you know, clear. Uh, Do we know the ultimate motive as to why Joe Biden fired the prosecutor? No. But to me, it's pretty clear Joe Biden should not have been making those kinds of decisions in the first place. Uh, You know, imagine the context in the United States. Uh, You can't have a powerful politician fire a prosecutor, even if there's legitimate grounds for doing so. If that prosecutor is investigating the politician's son, it's a massive conflict of interest. It looks bad. So I agree with you. We don't have definitive proof that they were linked. There were other reasons to get rid of him. But the fact that Joe Biden so brazenly in a number of cases, Ukraine, Russia uh, and uh, China, uh, is involving himself in direct decisions that involve companies and entities and business partners linked to his son. Uh, shows to me that he does not take conflict of interest and these kinds of provisions seriously. And as a president or vice president, he's required to. Yeah. Uh, For what it's worth, the Wall Street Journal says by the time this prosecutor left office, Shokin is his name, he was no longer pursuing the Burisma investigation. But we don't know the facts. I mean, look, we've seen that out of Ukraine these days. The disinformation, of course, the officials there have been lying to us and will continue to lie to us. That's not in any way, a commentary on the the sadness of what's happening to the Ukrainian people. I'm just saying you you can't 
you couldn't trust yeah. the Ukrainian officials before. You can't trust them now. Uh, we're doing our best to piece together what actually happened between those officials and the son of our sitting president. And we're being given the runaround by them and by our officials. Thanks to people like yeah. Peter, uh, we're cobbling together the story. But it would be nice if the rest of the media would help. They're just barely starting to. We've got the big toe in the Peter Schweitzer (laughs) waters, which is something. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks, Megan. I enjoyed it. All the best. Quick programming note for you before we go. Some of our favorites are coming back this week. The Fifth Column guys will be here on Thursday. So much to get to. And my pal Stephen Crowder. Love talking to him. He's one of a kind. He'll be here on Friday. Uh, Plus, did you know that March had more arrests at the southern border than any other month of the Biden presidency? Probably not because the media is barely covering it. We're going to have more on that tomorrow. Don't miss the show. Download on Apple, Pandora, Spotify, and Stitcher. It's free. Also at YouTube.com slash Megyn Kelly. Go over there and subscribe if you would. Thanks so much for watching, listening, and we'll do it all over again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.